You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. I invite you to return to Isaiah 8. We'll begin reading with verse 1 and read through the entire chapter as we take a bird's eye view of this of this chapter this morning really largely a ver- bird's eye view of chapter 7 and 8 Isaiah 8 verse 1 Then the Lord said to me take a large tablet and write on it in common characters belonging to Mahershalahashbaz and I will get reliable witnesses Uriah the priest Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah to attest for me and I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Mahershalahashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus, and the spoil of Samaria, will be carried away before the king of Assyria. The Lord spoke to me again, Because this people have refused the waters of Shiloh, that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Ramalia. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, Mighty and many, the king of Assyria in all his glory, and it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Say counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. For the Lord spoke thus to me with His strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, Him you shall regard as holy. Let Him be your fear. Let Him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. And I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching, to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry, and when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold the stress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reading of your word. We thank you, Father, for your faithfulness to us and giving us such an exhaustive word. The 66 books that we refer to as the Holy Bible. Father, we thank you for every one of them. We thank you, Father, for this chapter Oh, Lord, we pray that you would teach us from this chapter. Teach us these things, Lord, that you would have us to know at this time. Oh, Father, be our instructor and our guide. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Did you know that how you approach the Lord will directly affect who He is to you? Have you ever thought about that? How you approach the Lord will directly affect who He is to you. Whether He is a sanctuary or He is a snare. It largely comes down to how we receive Him. You know, The Christmas time is a, a time of special intimacy and adoration for the faithful remnant. It's a time that reminds us of the greatest gift that humanity has ever received, the gift of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But to many, it's, it's largely a time of indifference towards Christ, is it not? And how we receive, how we receive Jesus largely determines whether He is a sanctuary to us or whether He is a snare to us. That's something that we see developed very clearly in our text this morning. Now, to see this, we really have to delve into the context. Last week, I spent some time developing some of the context. I would like to review some of the things I talked about last week, because quite frankly, that's how we learn. You hear it once, you're going to forget most of it if you're like me. I forget it. You hear it a second time and some more sticks. Um, so the context is a very interesting context because we can relate so well with it. Quite frankly, the times that, that, that this passage comes in, they're dark times. Uh, they're times of darkness and uncertainty, and we can relate with that, can't we? I mean, on the government front, it, the, the people of Judah are being led by an idolatrous king, not a good leader. And as I said last week, good leaders are a blessing to the country. Bad leaders, they're the opposite. Uh, they're, they're the opposite. Uzziah, uh, uh, Ahaz's grandfather, was a great king. Uh, Israel prospered under Uzziah. Uzziah reigned for 52 years. And yeah, if you read the sacred history, you'll discover that he, he had an issue with pride that's recorded for us where he was disciplined by the Lord pretty sternly for that. But uh, overall... Uzziah was a, a great king. Uh, he walked in the ways of the Lord. His son Jotham was another great king who walked in the ways of the Lord. But his son Ahaz, we're told of Ahaz that he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, following after Israel, who had followed after the nations around her. So on the government front, they're being led by an idolatrous king, and this has just devastating consequences on Judah. Um, on the international front, as I said last week, Assyria, and it's helpful if you can conceive of the geography in your mind. If you think of the Holy Land, and if you think of, of, of Judah in the south, then Israel just north of Judah, following up Syria just north of Israel, and then off to the east towards Babylon, you have Assyria. And Assyria is a nation that is growing very rapidly. They're projecting power uh, all, all over the place. Uh, they're conquering uh, towns and villages. They're raising a ruthless army. They're, they're, quite frankly, a very ruthless and scary bunch. And their intentions is to conquer the world. Very well-known fact. 
And on the political front, we have Israel and Syria who are forming an alliance. Sometimes when you read the word Ephraim, uh, that's uh, the second son of Joseph. And sometimes Ephraim, when you read Ephraim, especially in the prophets and in the Psalms, it's making a reference to Israel. Uh, it is in our text in chapter 7. And we have what is known as the Syro-Ephraim alliance, if you will. Syria and Ephraim are often enemies. Uh, but as I said last week, they decide to, to make up for a little bit because they realize that Assyria is such a threat that they, it's almost like they said, listen, you and I, we're not our biggest problem. Our, biggest, our bigger problem is Assyria. Let's get, along, let's get along here. Let's form an alliance and see if we can stand up to Assyria. And of course, they add it up, and it's pretty clear they're no match for Assyria. So they whistle for Judah, and they call up Ahaz, and they say, listen, you should join our alliance. Well, Ahaz doesn't want anything to do with that. Fighting Assyria doesn't sound like something he wants to do. For good reason. The three of them are no match for Assyria. Assyria refuses, and this makes Israel and Syria just furious. So they decide, let's go down, let's conquer Jerusalem, and let's set Tabiel up as our puppet king, and he'll go along with whatever we say. Then we'll have the resources of Judah on our side, and the three of us, perhaps, will be able to stand up to Assyria. That's what's going on on the political front, and you can see how uncertain those times would be, how dark they would be, how scary they would be. And the leading problem, probably, I think definitely the leading problem is reliance on human strength and human wisdom. This is what they're all doing. You know, you, you, the people are trusting in human strength, trusting in human wisdom. Israel and Syria, they're attempting to stand against Assyria. How? By this alliance. Trusting in chariots. Trusting in princes. Sounds like Psalm 20, doesn't it? Do not trust in chariots. Do not trust in princes. And what's Ahaz up to? Well, he's attempting to stand up against Israel and Syria with his own ingenuity, isn't he? It's often pointed out that Ahaz really has three choices. Uh, I spoke about that last week. You know, us, uh, Syria and Israel come down and they're attempting to, 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 to take over Jerusalem so that they're going to kill Ahaz if they succeed. And Ahaz has a choice. He could try to maybe send someone out with a little white flag and say, hey, peace. All right, I'll join your alliance. Maybe, they'd probably still kill him anyway. But maybe, maybe he could form an alliance with them and be spared. But he would have to fight Assyria. Or he could call up Assyria. You know, when there's a really big, bad, mean dog on the block, you can try to stay away from the dog, or maybe you can make friends with the dog. He decides maybe, okay, let's see if we can make friends with the dog. The only problem is you can make friends with Assyria, but it costs a lot of money to be friends with Assyria. Assyria has a charge for being friends. And Ahaz actually has to go into the temple and raid the temple of its silver and its gold in order to be friends with Ahaz. And there's an annual subscription to that friendship. Well, that's the second option that he has. So there's a third option. He could trust in the Lord. That's a third option. And the Lord graciously sends Isaiah to him. Can you imagine, like, 
the benefit that one of our leaders might have if they had a prophet of the, of the magnitude, of the credentials of someone like Isaiah? Isaiah's don't come in every generation. Ahaz has the benefit of having Isaiah counsel him. And what does, we, we read about it in chapter 7. What does, what does Isaiah say? He says, this thing, with, this thing with Syria, this thing with Syria and Israel, it's not going to stand. Relax. Don't fear. It's not going to come to pass. It's not going to happen. Trust in the Lord. That's his third option. So he can align with Israel and Syria. He can make a treaty with us, Syria, or he can trust in the Lord. What does Ahaz do? He takes the second option. He trusts Assyria. He makes a, a pact with the devil himself is what he does. And it has devastating consequences to the people of Judah. Now, behind the scenes, we always want to get behind the scenes. But behind the scenes, we find that God is sovereign over all of this, of course. God is sovereign over the nations. If you look at chapter 7 and verse 18, I pointed out last week, verse, chapter 7, verse 18, where we read the words, in that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. What does that mean? Well, back up to verse 17. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. Well, who might that be? The answer, the king of Assyria. What do we learn from these passages? We learn that Assyria's strength and rising to power is not something that's just happening by the wit and the wisdom of Assyria, but no, it's actually happening by the sovereign hand of the Lord. The Lord is raising up Assyria. For what end? To punish, to punish Israel. The Lord is raising Assyria to be an instrument in His hand to punish Israel for her idolatry. So, all of this trust in human wisdom, in human ingenuity, is going to come to nothing. Because these folks think they're just fighting each other, when in reality, they're fighting the very decree of God. It's certainly not going to come to pass. It's certainly not going to come. And this brings us to chapter 8 and verse 1. It's only as we understand what I've just said that it's going to make any sense to us when we come to chapter 8, verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, take a large tablet and write on it in common characters belonging to Meher Shalahasbaz. Now, what do we do with that? What is that all about? Well, in, in essence, God is telling Isaiah to make what we've called today a billboard. I want you to put a billboard out there on Route 30, somewhere where everyone will see it. And I want you to put, wise men still follow Jesus. Right? No, wise men do still follow Jesus. But you get the picture in your mind, right? We've all seen those billboards. No, this one isn't to say wise men still follow Jesus. This one is to say, Meher Shalahashbaz. Well, that's helpful. <laughs> We're riding down the road and we see Meher Shalahashbaz. We probably almost wreck our car wondering what that was about. What is Meher Shalahashbaz? Well, most of you will have a footnote after uh, Meher Shalahashbaz. And if you go down into your margin, it'll probably, if you have a footnote, there'll be an explanation. 
It'll say Meher Shalahashbaz means the spoil speeds, the prey hastens. It's not something that's so much grammatic. Alec Matier, famous, uh, he went to be with the Lord a few years ago, but a great Old Testament scholar, Alec Montier. Um, he said it's meant to be more, um, what was the word he used? Uh, uh, it's meant to be a picture more than a grammatical expression. If you think about it, the spoil speeds, the prey hastens. What's this mean? What this means is that God is given Ahaz and his people a time frame. This is about a time frame. If you continue to read verse 2, I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah, to uh, attest for me. There we're told that um, um, there's going to be witnesses who will see the, uh, the, uh, the, the sign being put up. And in verse 3, I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Meher Shalhashbaz. Verse 4, Before the boy knows how to cry, My father and my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Now what is this about? Well, in, in the time that it takes for a son to be conceived, born, and learn how to say mommy and daddy, by that time, Syria and Israel are basically going to be destroyed by Syria. That's what this means. And I, I've always found it interesting. In fact, we can, we can get a little bit confused, especially if you're familiar with the sacred history. If you look at verse 2, there's quite a lesson in this. I almost, I almost focused on this, but because it's the, if it would have been another season, any other season in Advent, I might have stopped in verse 2 because there's quite a lesson in verse 2. Notice... The verse 2 says, I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah, to attest for me. Now, if you've read 2 Kings, especially chapter 16, you're going to read, and you read Uriah the priest here, you're going to think Uriah the priest. Uriah the priest, that's that apostate priest that did everything that Ahaz told him to do. Because in 2 Kings 16, we're told that after Assyria, or after Syria is sacked, Ahaz travels up to Damascus, which is the capital of Syria. And while he's up there, he sees an altar. It's an altar to a false god. And he copies down very meticulously. He makes a blueprint of that altar, and he sends the blueprint back down to Jerusalem, instructing Uriah the priest to make an altar to those specifications and to set it up. And Uriah the priest does exactly what he's told. And he moves temple furniture around and sets this altar up and begins to offer sacrifices to it. Now, we think to ourselves when, okay, we've got this in our mind and we look at verse 2, I will get reliable witnesses. Uriah, how can he be a reliable witness? What do we do with that? I'll tell you what I think is going on here. Uriah is an apostate priest for sure, but he is somebody that the ungodly look to and respect. Those kind of people are around. Apostates that the world falls down after. 
You don't have to look far to find them. They travel around in all kinds of costumes. You don't have to look far to see them. They're reliable to the ungodly eye. To the ungodly eye, this looks reliable. Okay, you guys put a lot of stock in what Uriah has to say. I'll get Uriah to be around when we put up our billboard. So he can say, hey, that billboard was put up at certain time. So no one can contest it. So that when Mahashalahashbaz is born, no one can say, hey, you know, you threw this sign up after the, after the boy was born. No, no, you need, to talk to your, you need to talk to one of your boys. Uriah, you know how reliable he is. You need to talk to Uriah and he'll tell you that this thing was set up. And quite frankly, to the ungodly eye, by that time, everything's going to be seen. Everything's going to seem to be going well, isn't it? Ahaz has three choices. What are the three choices? Make an alliance with Syria or Israel. That's one choice. Call up Assyria. You know, we can't beat the big bad dog that's down the block, but maybe we can become friends with him. We, you know, we can sell the farm to buy bones for him and throw bones at him until we're out of money. That seems to be what everybody wants. That seems to be what everybody thinks is wise. That seems to be the thing to do. That's what Ahaz does. And what happens to Syria and Israel who are, try, are trying to attack Jerusalem? They're, well, they're, they're no more. My point is, at this juncture, it might seem like everything's going fine, wouldn't it? I, it this is great. It worked. See, Isaiah, we were, you, you would have had us do the wrong thing. Everything is working good. That is until we get to verse 5. Look at verse 5. The Lord spoke to me again. Verse 6, because this people have refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over resin and the son of Ramalia. Notice the poetry there. It's just poetic. It's poetic. Because the people have refused the waters of Shiloh, that's a symbol of the Lord's provision and protection. It's gentle. It's faithful. It's safe. It's an emblem of the Lord. Because you have refused the waters of Shiloh. In other words, because you have refused the Lord. Verse 7, therefore. There's that word therefore. You remember I brought that up last week? Therefore, the virgin shall conceive. That word therefore is a word of judgment. Because you've refused the Lord. Verse 5 and 6. Therefore, verse 7. Therefore, behold. The Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria in all his glory. Notice, who's bringing him up? Who's bringing up the king of Assyria? The king of Assyria thinks the king of Assyria is bringing him up. Keep reading Isaiah and you'll discover that. The king of Assyria thinks it's, it's all him, man. He thinks it's all him. But who's actually doing it? The Lord is doing it. The Lord is raising Assyria. The Lord is raising him. And he is going to rise... And he will rise over all its channels and go over all of its banks and sweep on into Judah. And it will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. A couple of months ago when Tammy and I were down in Dougspur, Virginia, you know, the, the, the weather down there got really, really wild would be a good way to put it because the remnants of Hurricane Michael were coming through. The first couple of days were pretty peaceful. It was rainy, but we were able to like hike and 
run around and do a few things. That third day, no. Um, these streams, like there was ditches that had just like a little bit of water in them. These ditches became cricks. And the cricks became like rivers. I mean, I showed some of you pictures. of, And it just came up like, it just came up so fast. That was the biggest threat to the area that we were in was flash flooding. Um, here's exactly the imagery that we have here. The imagery of flash flooding. Assyria, whom they trusted, will become, will become like a, a, a raging river that's up over flood stage that no one can control. And in verse 8, we're told it'll reach to the neck. What does that mean? It means that it's not going to consume completely. The head of Judah is Jerusalem, and Jerusalem actually will be spared by God's mercy. So, but, but, the, but the neighboring little towns and villages, they get ravaged. They get ravaged. That, that, that water comes right up right up to their neck. And then verses 9 and 10 basically say the same thing that chapter 7 was saying. Be broken, you peoples. Be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. You can strap on your armor if you want. Verse 10, you can take counsel together if you want, but it's not going to come to anything. It's not going to come to anything. That's the same thing that was said back chapter 7 and verse 7. It shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. It's the same message. It's a continuation of the same pericope, if you will. Now, we could ask ourselves a question, what are the faithful to do in the meantime when all of this is going on? When times are dark and uncertain, what are the faithful to do? And it's good that we ask that question because in verse 11, that's exactly what we learn. Notice in verse 11, the Lord spoke thus to me with His strong hand upon me. Do you see that in verse 7? With his strong hand upon me. Don't miss that detail. Because there's, 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 there's an image. There's almost an image of Isaiah maybe about to step out in front of a truck. And, and the Lord reaches out and grabs him with a strong hand in a fatherly way. And doesn't allow him to proceed in front of that truck. It's with a strong hand the Lord reaches and gets a hold of Isaiah, and he says to him, do not walk in the way of this people. Don't do it, Isaiah. Don't do it. That's what Ahaz is doing. He's walking in the way of Israel. And that's what Israel's doing. They're walking in the way of the nations around them. And quite frankly, tomorrow, we're all going to scatter out into the workplace. And what is the easiest thing for us to do in the workplace? It's to act and think like everyone else in the workplace, isn't it? It is so easy, isn't it? To follow the world, isn't it? To adopt its beliefs, to adopt its practices, to fall into its patterns, if you will, its values, its ideas. That's the easiest thing for us to do. God says through Isaiah, don't do it. Do not walk in the way of this people. Our second lesson that we get is in verse 12. Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. Well, what does that mean? You know, if you read commentaries on this idea of conspiracy, you're going to get probably a different answer from, you probably get as many answers as you have commentaries in your library. I don't think, when I, when I encounter things like that in Scripture, I come to the conclusion we don't know the answer. 
I don't think we know the answer to this one. I don't think we can say dogmatically what is the exact nature of this conspiracy that people are calling conspiracy, but that doesn't cloud or hide the meaning of this verse in any way. What is being said in this verse? Don't look at things the way the world looks at things. Don't view things the way the world is viewing things. That message is loud and clear. What is the conspiracy? It's probably uh, Isaiah's call calling Ahaz to trust in Assyria. It's probably that. Ahaz, Isaiah doesn't have a really popular message. It's not a popular message. It's never been popular to proclaim the truth. If you're out proclaiming the truth, it's not going to be popular. I mean, we can go out and we can try to, you know, water down the truth. If our goal is to be popular, then that's the method we're going to take. But if your goal is to be faithful and really proclaim the message. It's not going to be a popular message. Don't be surprised uh, when you discover that you're going to have a lot of resistance. Isaiah's telling Ahaz, don't rely on Assyria. Everyone else seems to be wanting to rely on Assyria. Just keep in mind that when Ahaz learns of the Syrians and the Israelites attacking Jerusalem, he shakes like the trees before the wind. But the text tells us that the people were doing it too. So a lot of people were following uh, Ahaz. So be careful that you don't get caught up in evaluating things the way the world evaluates things. The next time you're watching the news networks, be careful you don't get caught up evaluating things the way your favorite anchor evaluates things. That's a good application of this. I hear people aping that stuff all the time. I wish they'd quit it. We can think for ourselves, you know, and we should be thinking for ourselves, and we should be comparing everything that we hear and see through the lenses of Scripture, which is going to be the next thing that we're going to see. The next thing that we're going to see, look at verse, well, before I get ahead of myself, look at verse 13, second part of verse 12. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread, but the Lord of hosts, Him you shall regard as holy. Let Him be your fear, let Him be your dread. Okay, do not fear what they fear. What are they fearing? They're fearing man. That's a hard thing. It's a hard thing not to fear one another, isn't it? This is not an easy thing. It's not an easy thing. But we're told the Lord of hosts, him you shall fear. You know that phrase, Lord of hosts, you find that in Scripture all over the place, don't you? You ever wonder what it means? You ever wonder what the Lord of hosts? The Lord of hosts, when God reveals himself as the Lord of hosts, what he is saying is, I am Lord of all armies, both heavenly armies an earthly army. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, when Peter pulls his sword out and goes to cut the ear off, cuts the ear off of one of the high priest's servants, Jesus stops him and says, wait a second. If I really wanted to fight like this, don't you know I could call on my father and he would send more than 12 legions of angels? Now that would be an army. That'd be an army to fear. The Lord is Lord over that army. And he is Lord over earthly armies too. He's powerful. And he's behind these things. It's him that you shall fear. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching. That's verse 16. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching. If you look down to verse 19, when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Verse 20, to the teaching and to the testimony, if they don't speak according to this word, it's because they have no dawn. If people won't believe the word of God, then they'll believe almost anything, including psychics, 
mediums, all that stuff. That's strictly prohib uh, forbidden for the people of God. That's a bad can to be opening. You want to keep that can sealed tight. Don't, don't open that can. The people are trusting all these things. Isaiah says don't follow them. Don't, don't go after them. It's the Word of God that we're to trust in. It's the Word of God that we're to filter everything through. Verse 17 is one of the most, one of, I think maybe, maybe the toughest thing for us. Verse 17, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding His face from the house of Jacob and I will hope in Him. I'll wait for the Lord. It's hard to wait for the Lord, isn't it? We want results right now. Every time I write a report for Presbytery, I would like to have some results to put in that report. I don't feel that way so much now, but boy, when we first started, I felt that way. The Lord seems to be, to me, the Lord seems to be hiding His face. That's why we don't see a lot of conversions. I have met some folks. I mean, there's people who say, oh, you need to talk to such and such. He's come to faith in the Lord. And I talk to them and I'm thinking, I wouldn't be telling him he's come to faith in the Lord. I wouldn't be saying that to him because I don't see any evidence of repentance. You see that all over the place. Faith without repentance is dead. Faith and repentance are two different things, but they're never separated. Saving faith Will there's going to be a change in your life. There's going to be a marked change in your life. And the way you think and in what you value, we can't just add Jesus onto a worldly life and think we've arrived. And don't tell people they've arrived when they're doing that. But I think, I think, I think many are so asleep that they don't know the difference. And we have the blind telling the blind that they're okay. I know that's a harsh comment, but that's what I see. I think the Lord's hiding His face, quite frankly. Because when you meet someone who's been touched by the Lord, you don't need any commentary on that. You don't need any commentary on that. It's very obvious. I met a woman the other day. I think she's a little mixed up, but I think she knows the Lord. <laughs> I think she knows the Lord. She's in fear and trepidation, just going on about what they're doing and you know, it's, 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 she's just shaking, you know. Um, I don't think she should be shaking. I think somebody needs to tell her that God's sovereign and you're safe and hidden in Christ and He's got this under control. I don't know what she's taught where she goes, but I was struck very strongly. This woman, this woman believes in Jesus. She believes in Jesus. And that's usually the case, isn't it? It's usually the case. Now, there's a spiritual principle I want to leave you with, and it's what I introduced this message with, and it's found in verses 11 through 14. Really, verse 15 would include it, but verses 11 through 14, uh, we find this spiritual principle. And what is the spiritual principle? It's this. It's that Christ is either a sanctuary or a snare. If you look at verse 14, He would become a sanctuary and a stone of offense, and a rock of stumbling. He's either a sanctuary or a snare. Actually, chapter 8, verse 14 is quoted all over the New Testament. I don't know if you realize that or not. You're reading this verse or allusions to this verse all the time. Simeon quotes it. Paul quotes it. Peter quotes it. Jesus even applies it to himself in Matthew 21. 
I was going to look at all those verses this morning. We don't really have time to look at those verses, but I will read one verse that's season appropriate, and it's the words of Simeon, and Mary and Joseph are presenting Jesus in the temple. And in Luke chapter 2, verse 34, Simeon blesses them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. That's a direct reference to what's being said here. This child will be a sanctuary or a snare. Comes down to how you receive him. Comes down to how you receive him. The Lord will not be treated with indifference for very long. The Lord becomes a stumbling block and snares to those who do not trust him. And all we have to do is just think through our Bibles. Think think through Genesis 3. Adam and Eve, after they rebel against God, once when they trusted Him and they heard the sound, we can, we can surmise, reading between the lines, that when they trusted Him and they heard the sound of Him coming in the garden, they ran to Him. But after they rebelled and they heard Him coming into the garden, well, we know for sure what they did. What did they do? They hid from Him. You see, who He is is largely determined by how they receive Him. Do you see the point? And of course, we could think of the demons when Jesus, during His earthly ministry, came in contact with demons. What did the demons do? Oh, look, it's Jesus. We're happy to see you. That's not what they did. They tried to and tempted to flee from Him. We could think of Ahaz trusting in Assyria and all those false gods. We could think of Israel trusting all the practices of the nations around them. What about ourselves? It's really easy to sit and point fingers, isn't it? Let's ask the question, what about me? Sometimes the greatest gifts that God gives us are the snares in our lives. They get in the way between us and the Lord. One of the leading idols today is children. I mean, we could pick on sports if you want. That's a safe one. Not to pick on sports. Especially if you're like me and you're not really into sports. That doesn't cost me anything to pick on sports because I don't really care about football. You really want to know what my opinion about football is? They all need to grow up and get a real job. <laughs> Where in the world can you make millions of dollars playing a child's game? Go get a job. This is ridiculous. I think it's absolutely ridiculous. As you get closer to Pittsburgh, you want to pipe that down a little bit. I've talked like this in Pittsburgh, and I've had some problems after the service with certain people who were sitting in the service wearing black and gold. Please don't do that. Don't come here with black and gold on. Because you're wearing, you're wearing an idol's color. Don't do that. That's a horrible witness to the rest of the world. Don't come here with that on. I mean, I don't like to talk about dress codes, but and I choose to wait for about 10 years before I make that statement. I've never made that statement, but I've wanted to really bad. <laughs> and it feels so good to do it. Because you know I love you, and I don't mean any harm by it, but it's an awful witness to wear an idol's colors in here. It's a child's game. And there's a bunch of blind people following it. 
We're not to act like that. We come in here with the Lord's colors on. We come in here with Christ's colors on. That's how we come here. The Lord becomes a sanctuary to those who trust Him and honor Him and fear Him and save Him. What does a sanctuary mean? If I could detain you just a little bit longer, you'll, you, you won't mind. Don't let me close yet. I won't, can I go just five more minutes? The word sanctuary is so rich. And the Old Testament really has this wonderful imagery. And it's the imagery of the Holy of Holies. You have the, the temple. Think of the temple complex. You have the outer courtyard, which is a holy place. But as you get closer and you get into the temple, you move into the first room of the temple, if you will. And that's the holy place. And that's a very holy place. But beyond that, there's the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. In there, that's where the Ark of the Covenant is. And in the Old Testament economy, that represented the very presence of Almighty God. So to enter into there would be to enter into the most intimate place with God. And only the high priest could go in there. And he could only go in there after a battery of sacrifices and spiritual uh, uh, rituals, purifications, and he could only do it once a year. Jesus... He said, you destroy this temple, and I will rebuild it in three days. People took those words out of context, and they used it to, 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 to what they thought was to destroy him. What did Jesus mean by that? Jesus meant he's the holy place. He meant he's the temple. He is the sanctuary. Christ is the sanctuary. You see, how you receive him will determine whether he is a sanctuary or not. If we're meeting Jesus and ask yourself this question and be honest with yourself, am I meeting Jesus with indifference? If you are this morning, he is a snare to you. But if you're trusting in him, if you're placing your trust and your soul in him, then he becomes a sanctuary. He becomes a sanctuary. And I'll give, you, I'll give you one illustration of how this is so blessed. As you follow the Lord and get closer and closer to the Lord, your sin becomes more visible in your life. And for me, it's at night when I'm laying down in bed before I have fallen asleep and I'm reviewing the day. That's when I see most prominently my character flaws. Some of you are going, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. See, it's uncomfortable, isn't it? What do we do with that guilt? We run to the sanctuary. We take it to the sanctuary. What happens when we take it to the sanctuary? You see, Jesus doesn't stand over us with a yardstick and say, look what you did, look what you did, look what you did, look what you did. When you run to the sanctuary, he stands before you with nail-pierced hands and a thorn on his head and holes in his, in, his, in his feet. And he says to you, look what I did. Takes it away. It's going to be in a very short period of time, if you're in Christ, you're not going to lay in bed like that anymore. And glory, you won't lay in bed like that. Once we're glorified, we won't ever feel like that again. Amen.
I think all of the blessings of heaven should be involved with the word sanctuary. Psalm 46, 1-2, I'll close with this. Listen to these words. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. Amen. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you and praise you for this great chapter, Isaiah 8, the gospel according to Isaiah as it is sometimes referred. We thank you, O Father, for this great chapter. We thank you, Father, for the season. O Lord, far be it from us to treat you with indifference in this great time, a time of, of celebration of you entering time, space, and history and coming in the person of Jesus Christ to save us, to become our sanctuary. Oh, Father, how we receive you, we largely determine who you are to us. Oh, Father, we thank you and praise you that you've given us the twin gifts of faith and repentance that we can behold you as our sanctuary. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.